This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Do you like sci-fi, fantasy, action, adventure, and comic books? Then you've come to the right place for your weekly dose of anything and everything geek. So strap in and let's get this show on the road. Welcome to the Science Fictionary Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Science Fictionary Podcast, presented by thesciencefictionary.com. I'm Andrew, and I'm here tonight with Marisha. Hello. And David. Hello. And we're going to jump right back into the pillars of fantasy. Uh, You may have or may not have, if you didn't check it out, we just got done with a series covering the pillars of science fiction, and that one is, those, those episodes are complete and up, and there's related information on the website it's sciencefictionary.com there is a poster with all of that information on it on our t public page which you can find by searching the science fictionary or i will drop a link in the show description but now we are talking the the pillars of fantasy so the the idea with the pillars of fantasy is just like with the pillars of sci-fi is to go back and to find those things that are crucial critical to shaping the modern fantasy genre. These are not necessarily the best pieces. Some of them are. Some of them are absolutely 100% the best pieces of fantasy out there. Lord of the Rings is is on the list and you know there there is nothing that's that really stacks up quite to to what Tolkien did. But some of these may not necessarily the best. They might not even be true fantasy themselves but have been critical in shaping what we know as the modern fantasy genre. Last week on the list, we had, we, we by unanimous consent, we put the Middle-earth book, so the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, on the list. Uh, we added The Witcher, The Epic of Gilgamesh, Beowulf, Harry Potter, uh, The Mother Goose Tales, Chronicles of Narnia, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the, the first 1973... I think it's actually 1978 edition, um, I think was the first of Gary Gygax's uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons books, and Discworld. So tonight we're going to jump into the second half of our list and and try to try to wrap this up and, and, and get this list done so next week we can jump into TV, which... It's going to be way harder. It's going to be way harder. This one is hard because it's so hard to narrow it down. Mm-hmm. My list just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. Even after we started, I kept going. Like, Robbie added Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and Discworld, and I went, oh, my God. Like, I had Discworld kind of thought about Dungeons & Dragons, but, but I had kind of thought of it more in the miscellaneous category. Um, but I didn't think about Robbie mm-hmm. pulled a specific book as kind of the the critical piece, you know, that that was so critical to building the game into what it is today. And I had not thought about that. Um, but Robbie said Discworld, and I went, oh, my God. Like, how is Discworld not on my list? I know it's not on Marisha's list, and I, I don't know if David's got it either, but I was glad to have Robbie's input not. to pick that one up because I would have left it off. And it, and it definitely belongs on the list. Well, I think we should let David start this time. All right, David. Uh, you got your first one for tonight ready? Uh, yeah, so um, last week we, we talked about uh, Mother Goose Tales, right. and that got me thinking about uh, one that I forgot, and then instantly, because I had, I had, had on my list um, Beowulf, and that was actually um, one that Andrew uh, submitted, I decided to replace Beowulf with this next one, uh, Children's and Household Tales by the Brothers Grimm um, mm-hmm. from 1812. Um, the Brothers Grimm did not, you know, come up with all of these fantasies and these these fairy tales, but the stories that they put into these books mm-hmm. have defined what we know as the stories today. Absolutely. Yep. They are pretty much, bes- besides... Disney, 
which I'm sure we'll get to in the movie categories, mm-hmm. they are the definitive versions of these fairy tales. Cinderella, um, all the stuff like that that you know. Um, Rapunzel, uh, Hansel and Gretel, uh, which I have a close personal attachment to because I played Hansel in the hit play at South Louisiana Public School. Um <laughs> <laughs> So I love it because of that. And that's actually how I first kind of learned about it. And pretty much any fairy tale you know about these characters, like it's it, it comes from here. What you know probably comes from this, even if you don't mm-hmm. realize it. Yep. All of the like fairy tale storybooks that your parents read you as a kid, pretty good chance mm-hmm. at least 75% of those stories are directly adapted from Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. It's cool. I think it might be hard just like to picking out the gore. Exactly. Just, you know, like simplified and, you know, shortened and, and had, you know, whatever this no, year's no heels getting cut off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, they, the, some of the, <clears throat> even the later Grimm's editions, Every few years, they put out another edition that was a little more friendly. Um, so even, hmm. you know, whenever someone says Grimm's fairy tales, there are actually several different editions of Grimm's fairy tales that, that they can reference. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. The yeah. definitive versions of these stories, actually several different renditions. And the earliest versions are probably the most accurate to the oral traditions. And the later ones are really more the creation of the Grimm brothers, which is really a, it's something in its own right, you mm-hmm. know, that they managed to make these stories so palatable. Well, they, they managed to go get these stories, collect these stories that were such a big part of the oral tradition. But so regional. But, but re- yeah, right. And, and that's, and we've seen another, you had Mother Goose Tales, mm-hmm. um, and we mentioned um, Madame Dalnoy's. Uh, fairy tales, which were kind of the same thing. It was these collections of regional folk stories. Um, and, and you have collections like that all over Europe, but Grimm changed the way we saw yes. these because Grimm took these, the Grimm brothers took these stories. And like you said, they, they initially collected them because these were folk tales that were, you know, these early stories. I mean, these were made to like scare children, scare into being children good. scare children into being good. Exactly. Um, and, and they slowly turned them into more fantastical stories mm-hmm. that were more enjoyable to read, more palatable. Right. And it's, but they totally changed <clears throat> the, the Grimm, the first issue, you know, the one that David is talking about is really the one that sets the stage for fairy tales beginning to transition into the full blown fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. Which, which of course leads to like everything that we have. Like, we wouldn't have the movie Tangled if right. not for this, you know? Right. Right. Like, it, it really does have that big of an effect and a, a ripple effect on, on what we know as fantasy. The most popular ways of getting people into fantasy, which is it's probably Disney, mm-hmm. and most of the stuff they do and most of the stories they make originally, they come from from this. Yep. Especially, I mean, those first, you know, most iconic fairy tales. You've got Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. Those are all Grimm's fairy tales. Um, you know, we got mm-hmm. into the Hans Christian Andersen a little later when we got Little Mermaid and eventually the Snow Queen. But, um, and, you know, that initial kind of push into fairy tales, yeah, it's um, definitely... I think if you had to pick one thing that the most influential in the kind of fairy tale department of fantasy, That's it right Grimm's there. Fairy Tales wins yeah. hands down. Yeah, these others were important, but Grimm's is. It's, is is it still the definitive too. edition? Yeah. Uh, even today. So. Um, Marisha, what did you have first for tonight? All right. So. Um, like my list y'all is extensive but i had a couple of different greek mythology writings that have been fairly influential he said's works and days and uh the theogony 
which were actually written in Greek. These are the some of the earliest times that these myths were set down. There was, in the 19th century, Nathaniel Hawthorne actually did an adaption of some of these stories um, called A Wonder Book, which really was whenever people started kind of in the same way that they had started telling fairy tales to children, this is whenever mythology became stories that you told to children. But the most influential and widely read version of Greek mythology for thousands of years was Metamorphosis by Ovid. It was written in the year 8 AD and was basically like 250 different myths were set forth in this um, Latin version of the great Greek myths. And it was the the Renaissance, you know, all of the artwork in the Renaissance that harkens back to Greek mythology. This is what they were reading. The, the writers like Chaucer that were kind of quoting back, or Shakespeare that are quoting characters from classical mythology, they learned that because they learned to read Ovid. That's was one of the ways, you know, part of an important part of education was to learn Latin and you needed to be able to read the Vulgate and you need to be able to read Ovid. Those were some of, you know, considered yeah. kind of bastions of what made an educated person. And Greek mythology is just such a an important part of especially, you know, how Western culture perceives fantasy. Um, you know, stories like Pandora's Box and Cupid and Psyche. These kinds of stories have been told and retold in slightly different ways for a really long time. So uh, that's my contribution. My first contribution tonight is um, Metamorphosis. And to be clear, you're saying, because you named a lot of stories there. Those are all like collected in Metamorphosis? In, yes. A lot of these different... Okay, okay. I got a little confused. It was basically a collection of Greek myths in Latin. Oh, okay. Yes. I agree with that entry. I, I've, read, I've written some, uh, some Greek and all that mythology stuff, too. Mm-hmm. in my list. So the first thing I've got on my list for tonight is Lemoore de Arthur by Thomas Mallory. Um, that is going to be, what year is that from? 1485. It is the quintessential telling of the story of King Arthur. It is. Uh, wow. It, it translates as the death of Arthur. It's the it is the story that sets the stage for everything that we have gotten since then regarding King Arthur and his knights begins with this telling of the story. Some of the most famous elements of the Arthurian legend were introduced in this right. in this book. Um, isn't this the first uh, Lance the first time that Lancelot makes an appearance? It is, is in, in the Mort- it is. Arthur? I believe so. So so if we want to talk about the different types of fantasy writing and of course, King Arthur, the Arthurian legends have inspired so much mm-hmm. of the of, of that particular of of that specific genre of subgenre of fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, it it inspired writers like Tolkien and and Lewis and MacDonald and 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 uh, there's a later telling of this story. T. H. White did a, a book called The Once and Future King in the 1950s. Which is basically mm-hmm. a, a retelling of this story, but T.H. White rewrote his to have an impression on, because it was it was set in a post-World War II era, and it was to kind of give hope and, and you know, after, mm-hmm. after a war. Um, and his version actually ends just before uh, Arthur's death, okay. where... Lamorda Arthur actually goes all the way through the the story. Yeah, that was actually on my uh, list. Was the Once and Future King? Because okay. yeah. I I love Arthurian legend. It's not my on my official list. It was on my working list. Yeah, I love Arthurian legend, and I wanted to put something on here, but I had no idea because I didn't have the knowledge about it. Uh, I had no idea where to start, what to put, because there are 
hundreds mm-hmm. of yes. novels mm-hmm. about Arthurian legends, hundreds of mu- dozens of musicals, dozens of plays, freaking dozens of films, mm-hmm. um, opera, parodies, poems, dramatic plays. Like there's every mm-hmm. medium of art has something to do. There is some piece of King Arthur in there. So I know that I, I knew I wanted to put, I'm so happy that you, that you put this as one of your entries. Cause I know that I wanted to include Arthurian legend mm-hmm. and that I ended up actually putting in my miss working list, Arthurian legend. I had no idea where to start, right. but I love it. I, I, I remember I put like uh, the mist of Avalon was, was one that I was thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, the sword and the stone. Right. There's so much Arthurian legend, but it sounds like that's where it all kind of started. Yeah, I mean, there are manuscripts of stories that kind of predate, but the idea, the modern idea of who Arthur was, this is where it starts. Yeah, this is kind of where the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, as they were sort of reframed as um, courtly heroes you know because this was this was the age of chivalry this was you know in a a post eleanor of aquitaine europe there was kind of this environment of the laws of chivalry and and the rules of 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 what it meant to be a real knight and a real lady and um this was the first time Mm -hmm. that that the king arthur stories had at least in in a literature you know as, as opposed to just stories being told around a fire was really framed that way so yeah, really influential. Yeah, I mean, there are some really influential 19th century, you know, the boys King Arthur or um, Howard Pyle's King Arthur and, his, and the Knights of the Round Table that kind of continued that sort of courtly uh, image of King Arthur. But yeah, it, it's hard to argue with. Uh, Andrew kind of went back and forth a little bit between the Once and Future King and this, right? Right. Because they, they've both in their own way been so influential but if you're going to go back to the source which you know i clearly am a big fan of (laughs) going back to the source right well it was one of those things that kept going back and forth and then i stopped myself and i went you know this is supposed to be the things that built it and the and the once and future king is clearly built on the back of this Mm -hmm. and and so that's why i settled here and it, this is still the most widely known version of the Arthur story. All right, David, what did you have next? Uh, my next entry on the list, this was, you know, kind of a hard choice. But then I, I thought about it and it's something I really wanted to include. So I decided to do it. And I think it's uh, a good entry is a Robert E. Howard's Conan. Yeah. Um, pretty much defined the sword and source. I mean, the... Um, what is it? The, the yeah, the sword and sorcery, yeah, sword and sorcery. Uh, genre, sword and sorcery genre. Yeah, I was thinking of um, sandals and swords, but that's no, no, sword and sorcery uh, genre. Um, there are dozens of uh, Conan books by Robert E. How- by Robert E. Howard. Uh, I believe the first one uh, was just called Conan. Maybe I'm entirely wrong about that. Or Conan no, the Barbarian. I, it's Conan. Uh, you're, you're correct. Yeah, that's what I thought. Conan, yeah. Because um, it was on my working written, list. So. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's on here. And he's written it, it dozens, belongs. and it's spawned hundreds of comic books, mm-hmm. of games, a couple of films, TV shows, tons of copycats. Yep. It's an entire archetype. Uh, the barbarian archetype is a huge, it's literally a, a class in Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> and it entirely comes from, from the character of Conan. And stories I I've read. So I don't think I, I don't think I've read the original Robert E. Howard Conan. I've read some uh, of his works. I've read lots of the comic books. Um, I'm a big fan uh, of of the stories. I love the adventure. Uh, I love the just the adventures. That's my favorite part of fantasy is like sword and sorcery, crazy adventures, stuff like that. You know. Yeah. And Conan's one of the best for that. Awesome. Invented sword and sorcery. Well, maybe not. It, it just completely fashioned. Yeah. that genre and spawned countless imitators. Um, and actually not even what's interesting is that based on, at least compared to everything else we have on the list, it's relatively recent. Um, mm-hmm. it, I believe it was made in like what the 1960s. Okay. I believe it was in the first, no, I think I'm wrong. I think I'm entirely wrong about that. 
Um, but it, my it, phone's it's dead fairly recent. The 19- yeah, I'm not. Um, I don't. My phone's dead, so I can't look it up. Let's see. I'm trying to find it right now. No, okay. Robert E. Howard died in 1936. I was looking at a different book. Okay. I think there are so many Conan books that are called Conan. Yeah. That I, it's hard to make sure I'm looking at the right one. But relatively recent, you know, being in the 1900s, um, compared to stuff that's literally like 2000 BC. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but it's you know it's one of those things when you really kind of look at it. It's you know the the origins of the genre are really late eighteen hundreds mm-hmm. as far as the when when folklore and fairy tales fully transitioned into a proper genre. Yeah, was was a lot later than you would think. Is actually later than we would consider the origin of the sci-fi genre, the mm-hmm. modern the modern sci-fi genre, which is which kind is, of ironic. It's kind of weird, but it's because fairy tales subsisted as and remained this idea that they were for kids longer than sci-fi writing. Sci-fi was considered more high-minded mm-hmm. in the early days with people like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. The irony is that that changed because Tolkien decreed that it was wrong. True. No, like for, for like right, he no, literally like wrote essays about how wrong it was that fairy tales were not for children, they were for people. Right. And he mm-hmm. believed that so strongly, he invested decades of his life in creating a world to prove that fantasy is not just for children. Right. Strong Sorry, I just read that um I got my got my facts straight here. That's the thing; it's so hard to find facts about stuff like this because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Conan the Barbarian was actually originally published in Weird Tales magazine mm-hmm. in 1932. Okay, yeah. now that's a that's an important yeah. one. Like I said, it was on my working list, and I uh, again, like kind of like you were glad I grabbed the Arthur stuff. I'm glad you grabbed that one because uh, I'm glad it's on the list. Marisha, what do you have next? Okay, so mm-hmm. this is like y'all. Narrowing this down has just been painful because I have to leave out beloved things like Peter Pan and um, Alice in Wonderland to have in my list. So this is one that is not as widely known today, but was very, very influential in some of the most prolific fantasy writers of the 20th century. And that is uh, the writings of George MacDonald. Uh, specifically The Princess and the Goblin, which was published in 1872. And George MacDonald is the kind of person that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Oswald Chambers raved about and bewailed the fact that his writing was not more well-known. He Now, he was a big writer of fairy tales, but he was a writer of original fairy tales. And his fairy tales were really some of the first examples of fairy tale as sort of a long form story as opposed to short stories. Um, he, he does have some short stories, but he also has some full on novels. And like I said, George MacDonald, he was, he, he would tell stories about things that, he, that had been told before, but he told about, he talked about things in a, in a very different way than were expected. You know, um, goblins, you know, could be defeated by stamping on their feet because they were so tender. Um, you know, so he managed to bring in like fairy tale elements that were very believable. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you would come across in Grimm's fairy tales, but he came up with a lot of them on his own. And like I said, he was a big influence on Lewis Carroll. He is actually the person who is credited with convincing Lewis Carroll to publish Alice in Wonderland. I think you can make a pretty good argument that um, the man who inspired Lewis Carroll, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien to write fantasy is um, a pretty important character in the history of fantasy. Yeah, that's a good entry. And, you know, I, there there were, there was another author that I grabbed something from that was another one that had a huge impact on, on Lewis and Tolkien. Specifically was William Morris. Primarily known as a poet, right? He was a poet, yes. Okay. But in 1896, he wrote a book called The Well at the World's End. And that that particular book, is 
considered the kind of the core uh, or the beginning of the you know the romantic fantasies. Mm. It's which has gone so awry in recent years. Right. <laughs> Twilight. Um, <laughs> in fact, a lot of people would consider this the. There are some people that say that this is the first work of the modern fantasy of modern fantasy literature. This book features one of the things this is really famous for is for its world building. Mm -hmm. It was kind of one of the first real attempts at creating this new fantastical world that wasn't ours. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the fantasy to this point was explicitly set in our world. Right. This was a departure where he created this new world. He he clearly was inspired by the Arthurian stuff, but it's basically the story of this kid. He's the son of one of, I think, five, either four or five sons of a king. And they're going out on this grand adventure. The, the sons are, but they make the youngest one, Ralph, stay home to ensure that there's an heir. So he's, he's prohibited from going on this adventure, which in, in turn leads him on this adventure of his own. He rescues a woman that's been trapped who winds up being a queen, basically, and uh, known as the Lady of Abundance. And, it leads, and, and she has drank from, it, it's kind of, it's got some Arthurian elements. It's got um, the um, Fountain of Youth thing kind of going on here too because they set out in search because she she has stayed beautiful and youthful even though she's they don't even know I don't I, I don't know if it really tells you how old she actually is but there's clearly something different it's because she drank from this well at the end of the world at the world's end and so our character sets out on this journey for for the world's end to to drink from this well ends up meeting back up with his brothers and so you get this this grand adventure epic much like Frodo's adventure. I mean, different. We were on a different adventure, but it's there's a lot of things that are, are mirrored here. And as fa in fact, Lewis and Tolkien both. Tolkien wrote an entire essay about this writer, but he also talked about there. There are some interesting crossovers where Tolkien and Lewis intentionally borrowed things from this story as a, kind of an homage. To this, there's uh, there's an ancient stone, ancient tables of stone. So think uh, of the wardrobe. Uh, there's a King Gandalf, also a King Peter. There's a horse, a white horse named Silverfax, who is definitely. I mean, there's no doubt that Tolkien got Shadowfax from yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's just a normal, a, a lot of things. And so I would say much like McDonald. I would say that anyone who had that much influence through their writing on people like Lewis and Tolkien, who really kind of were the pinnacle of the genre in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. that that this deserves to be on there. Sounds like one I should read. I've never actually... That's not one that I'm familiar with. I was familiar with the writings of George MacDonald because I'm just that kind of nerd, but this one I have never actually come across, so I definitely will have to track it down. Awesome. Okay, so that gets us up to how many? Eight. 12, 13, 14. That gets us up to 15 entries. Okay. With with Robbie's uh, two entries. All right, so Robbie sent me a couple more. I'll mention at least one of Robbie's that I, because I think that it's uh, it's got to be on the list is The Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. It was on my list. And that's one... I, it's, it's one of the critical ones. I don't really ever hear anybody talk about many of the books except the first one. But it's one of those series that the whole way through doing The Pillars of Sci-Fi, it was like every time I would say, hey, what's one we left off? Every time somebody would say, The Wheel of Time book. Not sci-fi. And it's like, and I kept saying, well, I don't think they're really sci-fi, but I really think that it's one of those critical pieces that belongs on this list, even though it's a lot newer than a lot of our others. So what do y'all think about The Wheel of Time? Do y'all have any thoughts on The Wheel of Time? I've never read it. I've heard the first one's really good. And that the subsequent ones get less and less good as they go on. I've been told yeah, that I've I ought never, to read um, it. But I think it has to be acknowledged to be important because so many other people say that it is. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's one of mm -hmm. those that's one of yeah. the, the best-selling 
fantasy books of all time. I mean, it's... It was um, inspired by Tolstoy's War and Peace. How does that make for an interesting book? Well, that I'm sorry. may be why it only made for a... Um, a good first book. A good first book. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure somebody will have something to say about that. But The fact that uh, none of us We're going to put that on it. Robbie had it on his list. I wish he was here to tell us a, talk about it a little mm-hmm. more. But let us know what you think about the Wheel of Time series. Uh, the other thing that Robbie's kind of got on his list here is something that I thought would make an interesting quick discussion. Because I, I kind of, uh, I think it harkens back to when we were doing the the uh, Pillars of Sci-Fi, I wrestled with Star Wars on which genre to put it in. Because it, it is, it's fantasy. It's a fairy tale story. It's a fantasy story. But it it's, it's sci-fi within a fantasy world is, I think, kind of where we ultimately landed on it. And that it really fits in both categories. Mm-hmm. So Star Wars is going to more than likely wind up in both in the movie category for fantasy and sci-fi. So Robbie actually Mm -hmm. threw something out that I had kind of thought about briefly and then kind of forgot about was Dune and whether or not it should be on both lists. I mean, anything that has an installment entitled Messiah probably isn't going to be purely scientific. Well, it's it's very, there's a lot of mystical elements to it. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's 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 much like Star Wars, and it, and it had a lot of effect on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's science fiction or it's fantasy with sci-fi elements. Yeah. Uh, because the sci-fi is there; it's no doubt it's there, but it's not mm-hmm. the, it's not the main story. It's just part of the the world, but it's also a world where you've got you know these things that are more or less magic and mystical and fantastical. And Although typically there are in, in Dune, basically most people believe that there are some, you know, like the, the Bene Gesserit and their breeding programs, they have been manipulating genetics for generations to produce these sixth sense basically so there there are a lot of them have at least most of the people in world believe that there is some kind of scientific explanation for what's going on at least right. the, it, the people pulling the strings believe that there's a scientific explanation going on everybody else believes that the man's a god okay so i'm not i'm not saying let's put dune on the list yet i just kind of wanted to see what everybody thought about it and maybe put it on mm-hmm. the table depending on what else we yeah i mean if we want to get it up to 20 and we get to 19 and we really don't know what to put for 20, I think an argument could definitely be made for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, let's just go back. Let's David, go what do you have that you would like to throw out there as a, let's see, we're at mm-hmm. 16. So we need four more. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, yeah. We're at, yeah. We need four more. Um, so I sort of see this almost as like a nomination thing. Like I'm going to nominate something and then you'll have to tell me what you okay, think. Okay. We'll give a consensus. Um, so this got down to, so I think we're all kind of down at the stuff that can be argued on or off. My next thought, actually, we even touched on it whenever we talked about the Epic of Gilgamesh, but should the Odyssey slash the Iliad, the sequel to the Odyssey, mm-hmm. right, um, be on this list? I think that you could make a really strong case. Well, I think that for putting most... the Homeric epics on this list. Yeah, mm-hmm. most scholars consider Beowulf. Yeah. They consider Beowulf and the Odyssey, the two earliest examples of, of fantasy writing. Yeah. Um, so I think there's absolutely a case for, I mean, the Odyssey's on my working it's list. It's on my working list too. And it's on mine too. So I, I think at this point, if, if it's on everybody's list, it probably makes it. I think that's, I, yeah, I think that, I think that that's a very strong one that should be on the list. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I knew just from my research, I knew it was actually on my original list, but then I took it off because I was hoping y'all would put it on y'all's list. <laughs> yeah. Um, it just. Because I actually have never read it because I dropped out of college before I had to. So um, <laughs> I never read The Odyssey. Well, you can I still read it. About it. So, fun story, you know, I didn't actually, I was homeschooled all the way through like all the way through high school. Mm -hmm. And my mom was one of those people who believed that children should learn what they were interested in. 
So consequently, I did not learn yeah. my times tables, but I read lots and lots of fiction. <laughs> um, so you can still read those sorts of things, even without a teacher telling you what to think about it. And you might even get more out of it. Well, that's, that's one of the books. Yeah, Honestly, probably. as far as books that I have read multiple times, that's probably really high up my list as far mm -hmm. as number of times I've read it. You know what's a really good adaption? Rosemary Sutcliffe has an adaption. The version of the Iliad is called Black Ships Before Troy, and I don't remember what the Odyssey adaption is, but it's it's really easy to read. Um, Homer sometimes, you know, it's been translated lots of different ways, sometimes in verse, sometimes it's just kind of, you know. They always read it in verse. Sometimes it's a little dull, um, but Rosemary Sutcliffe is always Homer good, Simpson wrote the Odyssey? He did. It was something. <laughs> Pen in one hand, donut in the other. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, no, the Odyssey is like some of the most en enduring classical motifs, you know, well, uh, yeah. Cyclops yeah. and sirens and, you know, lots of different yeah. things. Well, the, 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 just the fact Men hopping that around the world, cheating on their wife with goddesses who while the wife is sitting at home spinning and right. putting off all the but it's the the, <laughs> the, the, the the greek epics have been have have remained a a such a huge part of mm -hmm. the the cultural lexicon for so long mm -hmm. yep that I, I i don't think you can deny the effect that the those greek stories had mm-hmm um, so yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Marisha, do you have something you want to, but I, yeah, I think definitely putting the Odyssey on the yeah, list. Yeah, I think right? so. Yeah. Okay. okay. So my submission for the next spot is a thousand and one nights because it's just, again, has become such an important part of the, the fantasy lexicon, you know, um, genies and, you know, magic lamps and flying carpets and a lot of things that, um, have actually become elements of fantasy. They're not really, they're definitely separate from traditional like European tales, fairy tales, but they are, they're basically just fairy tales from somewhere else from a different, completely different um, cultural background, right? Some of them are Persian. Some of them are um, Islamic. They're Middle Eastern. They're all sorts of different. I was actually trying to figure out when the, they were actually compiled and there are so many different, it's like trying to find the original author of um, King Arthur stories, you know, in, in a really general sense. Like it's, it's like taking, you're taking a manuscript and trying to figure out who wrote it. Right. And not only, but so many different versions of this, because it's an anthology basically of lots of different kinds of stories, lots of different stories from lots of different places. It's really like, locking down the first time that that even it was written down is pretty much impossible but the consensus seems to be that they were compiled between the 8th and 13th centuries the the writing known as arabian nights or 1001 nights was compiled between the 8th and 13th centuries and the most aladdin and alibaba and sinbad being some of the most famous examples from from Thousand and One Nights. So that is my... Which, oddly enough, were added by Frenchmen well, you know. later. But, um, but uh, they were based on they were based on characters because that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about these. They're framed around a central set of characters. That's to true. All the Scheherazade stories. and her king who kills off women every night because that one treated them badly. Right. So even though it's, it's a collection of folk tales, they are, they are framed around a, a set. Of characters, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, they're one that's on my working list as well. Um, they're much like the Grimm's fairy tales or the Mother Goose fairy tales. They're they're fairy tales from another place, mm -hmm. from another culture that have influenced or uh, several other cultures, really. Right, really, a number of Mediterranean cultures is really where a lot of that came from. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So what does everybody think about adding 1,000 and one nights? I mean, if it's on both of y'all's working lists, I think it definitely belongs there then. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's an important one. Two entries left. Mm-hmm. Two entries left. And I would put on the table Gulliver's Travels. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. Gulliver's Travels is an interesting one because it's a satire of like traveling works, mm-hmm. like the adventures of Marco Polo. Basically it's like, and you just think their stories are outlandish. Listen to the stories I have to tell. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I almost feel like that's sorry. No, go ahead. I almost feel like, and maybe I'm off base with this, but that's all. I almost feel like that's like the equivalent of you suggesting Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> No, and the science fiction. At, uh, at least I'm. Con- at least I'm consistent. Nothing if not consistent. Love. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not. It's not me complaining. I think that'd be a great. I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as an entry on the sci-fi list, and I am not complaining about this one. I mean, I think it has its place. I think it definitely has its place. You know, not everything has to be like written two thousand years ago in a super serial and epic. You know. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, ser- when I say serial, I mean like serious, and like it doesn't it doesn't all have to to be that. And Gull- the, right. Gulliver's Travels, I, I think, is very popular, very big, very influential, and mm-hmm. I would uh, support it. But I'll let you talk a bit more about it. Okay. I mean, it's just it's one of those things that it, like Marcia said, it's satire. But and sometimes you look at satire and go, well, does it really belong in the genre? But this one becomes its own, through, through its satire, becomes its own thing that is mimicked all the time in science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. The, this, these, the, fa- the whole idea of the fantastical voyage. Yeah. In fact, I think mm-hmm. Gulliver's Travels was on my working list for sci-fi. Because even though the elements are more fantastical than scientific in nature, it's just so much sci-fi has kind of gone that route. Right. You know, call it, follow that trope. Also, I, in researching, I had read Gulliver's Travels, but I'd never seen it with the full original title. <laughs> yeah. Which is Gulliver's Travels are travels into several remote nations of the world in four parts by Lemuel Gulliver, first a <laughs> surgeon and then a captain of several ships. <laughs> because in the 1700s, the more words in your title, the better. But it's, it's, it, that's, I mean, it's, like I said, it's satire and it's, it's, there's a lot of humorous stuff in there and there's some dark stuff in there. Not and to mention, like, he puts out the, you know how he puts out the fire in the Lilliputians village. <laughs> right. Do you know this, David? How does Gulliver, pop quiz, how does Gulliver put uh, out the fire in the tiny village? He's on it? <laughs> he of absolutely course, yeah. does. They all get very mad and they banish him because so, that's an uncouth thing to do. So, so that's what I'm putting out there. So what do y'all think? I'm fine if it doesn't go on the list, but or we can table it and mention a I'll few let others. I'll make the call. Um, okay, so it's I think you, you've made a good case for it. It's not on my list, but why don't we see how many? We've we, got a little time. How many spots do we have left? And we've got two spots left. We have two spots left. Okay. And so let's put it on the table and let y'all throw a couple more out there. And okay. And we'll, we'll circle back. We'll see back. what sticks. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. What you got next, David? Um, my next nominee uh, would be, now I just want to get this out the way. I'm not going to nominate A Song of Ice and Fire, which is uh, Game of Thrones, because I love it. I think it's a big deal. I think it's very popular. I think that it will inspire things in generations to come. Like, if we would have done this list 20 years from now, sure, it would have been on there. Right. I think it's a bigger deal as a TV show. I agree. And as Game of Thrones. So with all the different stuff of literature, even though A Song of Ice and Fire personally is my favorite series, and I've read so over and over again, uh, I don't think it, it, it quite fits in on this list. Because it's very much, and George R. R. Martin admitted himself, he was inspired. It was all inspired by Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. It, right. It, I think in generations to come, he will now be the new. It'll be the new Lord of the Rings in a way of inspiring things to come. So I'm not going to do that one. But uh, what was next on my list to to nominate was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh, um, yeah. Invented the character. Of, of Count Dracula, uh, 1897, 
and pretty much created vampire horror fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think I think that and has that, been you know yeah. one of the most popular fantastical characters ever. Yep. So I would say that. I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm going to vote yes on Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think Dracula, yeah, Because fantasy does delve into the horror elements, the horror Mm subgenre sometimes, and we don't have anything else like that on our list. Yeah, I I agree. And, of course, you know, spawn many, many films, many different tropes about vampires and everything that we know about vampires now, which is a pretty big deal in fantasy uh, when you really think about it. It's kind of pops up in most in most fantasy worlds. There was some yep, vampire. Some, it was all really established here. Yeah, at least something vampire-like. Yeah, that's a, a good one. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. I I remember thinking about it, but it, it's not actually on my list, but it definitely should have been. That's one I think definitely belongs there. All right, Marisha, have you got something else? All right, so my last nominee is, and it's kind of a toss-up between Wizard of Oz and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But I think that Alice in Wonderland wins because it's just so... I think that Wizard of Oz is perhaps more influential as a movie, kind of like the argument that David was making for Game of Thrones. You know, Wizard of Oz is most important to the cultural lexicon as a movie, but Alice's Adventures in Wonderland mm-hmm. is so... The, the book itself and, and its sequels are so still so widely read um, with the il- original illustrations that I think that just that really bizarre opium-induced <laughs> um, version of weirdness that Lewis Carroll mm-hmm. created. Um, I'm not making any comments on Lewis Carroll as a person because he was terrible. However, Alice in Wonderland is an important important touchstone in, a, in fantasy, in my opinion. So that's my... I think that's... Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that pretty much is like all the ones that I was like, oh, it really needs to make it. Yeah, I mean, I've got a few others. I, I really like that one. And and I would say that Alice in Wonderland, something from that style mm-hmm. in that era belongs more than Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. I love Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, It is an important piece of literature, but we also already have other fantastic voyage genre mm-hmm. uh, we've got the odyssey right for starters so so i, I think the odyssey right. trumps gulliver's travels and knocks that back and so unless somebody else has something that they really want to pitch then i, I think alice in wonderland might be it unless david have you got Take something final else? spot yeah, I mean, because I've got other, I've Nothing. got some other neat, you know, other good stuff. I mean, Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen yep. is, is a big one. Even the even uh, A Christmas Carol was yep. on my working list. Mine too. Peter Pan. But as yeah, far as a, a lot of that stuff, go ahead. A lot of that stuff can be touched on in other categories. Ex- yeah, exactly. Kind of how I had to like balance it out. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I I think that well, I, I think Peter Pan's going to get on the miscellaneous list because that one's going to be hard because it was originally a play. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So what do you think about Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland, David? Um, I, I totally uh, support that idea. Um, I know it's, it's big and it probably overall in the fantasy draw from the sounds of it. I think you're right with your argument about like wizard of Oz or that one, like wizard of Oz kind of more important as a movie. This kind of sounds like, and feels like it belongs as being more important as a novel. Um, also, my uh, middle school English teacher hated it. So just out of spite of her, I'm going to say we put it on the list. <laughs> um, gotcha. Uh, and um, I'll also say I don't have anything that I think would trump that. But mm-hmm. I'll give a few. I have literally three other things that we didn't get to mention. So I'll give a few honorable mentions. Okay. Aragon. Uh, mm-hmm. Super yeah. cool. Yeah. I think that's a great story. I It's dope. I love it. Don't think it's it's, you know, super uh, influential. What's the thing? Maybe in like twenty years, it'll mm-hmm. be a thing we look yeah. back on. I also had the Once in Future Kings. I think that's a really cool story. But I think you touched on the Arthurian stuff, and we met, we talked about that earlier. Percy Jackson, the Percy Jackson series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think is another one of those things that twenty, thirty years from now we might look back on and be like, wow, this inspired so many things. Because I know a lot of people, uh, whenever I was in school, 
who read these books and were in love with these books. And yeah, in the same way, a lot of people were for Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I saw just as many in my generation, at least who were in love with the Percy Jackson series, um, who want to see, you know, there's another show getting made probably like for Disney plus there were the movies. So Mm -hmm. maybe in 20, 30 years, it'll be a bigger thing. As of right now, it's obviously very much just inspired by past things like Harry Potter and even um, the Odyssey and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then also, um, I had Peter Pan. And then um, a cool um, series, uh, The Assassin's Apprentice, uh, I think is really cool, mm-hmm. but not super influential. But I put it on my list just because I think it's a really cool series and cool thing of books. And once again, 20, 30 years from now might be a different discussion those are my honorable mentions but other than that i'm i'm really satisfied with the the, with the list yeah awesome marisha did you have anything else you wanted to i don't think so i think pretty much um lang's fairy tales was on my list yeah there were the thing is there's so many collections because i had aesop's fables yeah on on mine um there's so many collections of fairy tales that it was kind of hard to yeah you know there was no way to put them all on the list. Right. And that's the thing. It's like whenever the Grimm, whenever the Brothers Grimm kind of trumps everything else in the fairy tale yeah. genre, um, even though Lang's fairy tales were very, very influential, there were four volumes of them. There was the Red Fairy Book, the mm-hmm. Blue Fairy Book, the vi- the Violet Lavender Fairy Book, and the Yellow Fairy Book, I think. And they this was like the first time that it was like – Fairy tales were really dolled up and simplified and made just for children. You know, it was really, um, you know, Grimm Brothers was called children in household tales, but <laughs> it wasn't just for children. And, you know, your children might have nightmares from them. You're not going to have nightmares from Lang's fairy book. Um, and Tolkien hated them passionately because they were had gone against everything that fairy tales ought to be. But they were very an important cultural touchstone. Um, but I think really, mo- I think that the things that have wound up on the list are the most influential and important and wide-reaching uh, books. So I think I'm, I'm real proud of our list. I think we've- yeah, that does it for our fantasy pillars of fantasy literature list. And as always, let us know what you liked about our list or maybe what we forgot about, you know, forgot or should have added to our list. But until next time, Marisha, where can people find you? You can find me at princessesandpadawans.com. I am princesses underscore and underscore padawans on Instagram and ppadawans on Twitter. All right, David, where can people find you? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at stay underscore creative DD and over at my YouTube channel, creative d and I do tier list podcasts, Walking Dead, uh, D&D stuff. I do wrestling videos if y'all are interested. So um, check that out. All right. I'm Andrew Gore. You can find me running the Twitter account for this show at Sci underscore Fictionary. You can find me hosting our other show, our Star Wars show, every week. That's Coruscant Radio Underground. You can drop us a line at thesciencefictionary at gmail.com or check out thesciencefictionary.com to see what we have going on over there. And until next time, live live long long and and prosper. prosper.